Yes, Lord, thank you that you are hearing our prayers. Each one of our heart's desires and our sighs towards you. Yeah, Lord, I, I pray that you will receive them. And as we join in, in the prayers and the praise and the worship and the, the fellowship of Christians throughout all the ages and Christians over all the earth, Lord, we, yeah, we make great your name. And um, I pray that you will show yourself to us this evening through the sermon and through the worship and that we will feel close to you and that our questions will be answered, Lord. And the things that we struggle with, that we will come a bit closer to, to your heart and to the truth. And Lord, where we are still prevailing in our own sins, that you will convict us of that. And um, yeah, that we as a body will support each other and build each other up. I thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Hey, by the way, if you, uh, that, I, that I bought at some book sale in primary school, I, I think I was standard five, which is old world speak for grade seven, I think. And the book's title was Beston, and there slew they the goats. That's the, the reading from scripture. And then the chaplain comes up and he, he says, let us praise God. And then he says, oh Lord, and the, the congregation says, oh Lord. And he says, ooh, you are so big. Everybody says, Trinity. Now, many people try their best to explain what the Trinity is, and every time is almost egg on your face when you, when you use explanations. So let me tell you what the Trinity is not. The Trinity is not three different gods. That would be polytheism. Okay? That's not what the Trinity is. The Trinity is not three different identities. So in the same way that I am a husband, but I'm also a son, and I'm also a father, so that would make sense. Oh, maybe the Trinity is something like that. It's not, okay? That's a heresy. Don't even think about it. The, 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 the second one is maybe it's just different roles that he took up in history. So in the beginning, in the Old Testament, God reveals himself, himself as the Father, and then in the Gospels as Jesus, and now finally he's revealed himself as the Holy Spirit. So he goes into these three modes. That makes sense. It doesn't. Don't nod your heads. That's a heresy. Um, again, rather, what Christians say, as bizarre as it sounds, is that God is one, one who, and three, I, I mean one what, and three who's. One being, one essence, one what, but three personalities. Now, friends, it is really difficult to, to try and make sense of it, and we're not probably going to do that uh, this evening. But what I want you to know is that at, at various points, that's what we believe in terms of the Trinity, and at various points in the Gospels, 
we get an insight into the inner workings of the Trinity. And probably one of the most famous passages for that is in John 17, the high priestly prayer of, of Jesus. So in John 17, I just want to read the first five verses. It goes like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the It sounds a bit, a bit strange and abstract, but let me try and unpack it. It seems like what Jesus is saying is that his job is to glorify God the Father. And he's been doing that since eternity. The Father glorifies the Son. He's been doing that since eternity. Now, there are various schools of thought in terms of the Holy Spirit, but it seems like that, that force, that love between Father and Son is so strong that it is personal. And the, the, the Spirit glorifies the Son, and the Spirit glorifies the Father. And, and Jesus gives us an insight into this world when he's talking to his disciples. And... When we talk about glorifying, we're talking about delighting in the other. The father enjoys the son and is constantly deferring to the son, is constantly pushing the son to the front. The son is constantly deferring to the father, constantly pushing him to, uh, to the front. And the early church trying to make sense of this dynamic, what, what on earth is going on in the Trinity, they gave a word to what was going on, to this dynamic, and that word is perichoresis. Perichoresis. We get our word choreography from that. And they spoke of the dance of God. So what they said is that perichoresis is to, to come and go and to give space, to move the whole time. So they saw that dynamic within the Godhead where God is consistently busy giving way to the other person. Now, if we want to imagine this graphically, it would look something like this. You can either be static and when you are static, you are self-centered, and everything revolves around you. And we've seen a world that operates on that basis, right? Sometimes more, sometimes less. But, but most of us, if we're honest, we, we, we are very selfish, and, and we want the world to orbit around us. God, however, is the one doing the orbiting around the other. So the Father and the Son, they are orbiting around the other person. So that is a dance. The opposite of that dance would be to be static. Now, friends, there are so many implications of this pedicoresis. But the one thing that I want you guys to know is this. Many religions, and this is what, what C.S. Lewis uh, teaches in his book, Mere Christianity, many religions claim that, no, God, um, God is... God really likes love, whether they are Jewish or whether they are Eastern or even Islamic, although that's not one of the 99 names of God. But they would associate God with love. And that's, that's good and that's fine and, and that's fair enough. But when Christianity say, says God is love, we don't say he likes love. We, we do not say he thinks it's a good idea. We say that at his very essence is love. That is what he is. And here's the thing about love. 
it only works when there's a giver and a receiver. If you only have one person, and this one person is looking at himself in the mirror and he says, oh, I love, I love you, then we say that doesn't make sense because the giver of the love cannot also be the receiver of the love. That is you know, a type of, of narcissism. And uh, despite all the self-help books telling you to, to love yourself, I, I think it is a bad idea if it, if it goes unqualified. So we recognize that you need a receiver for love to, to take place. That is why when we go to weddings and somebody uh, says, I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life, and then the other person says, yeah, I, I want to do the same, and then your job as the congregants is to say, ah, cute, and you clap hands, because you could see a symbol of love happening in front of you, a receiver and a giver of, of love. But here's the thing. Who did God love before the creation of the world? Let's say God is, is, is completely one, all right? In the sense that he's not a Trinitarian God. Who did Allah or who did Yahweh, I'm, I'm talking about the Judaic uh, um, monotheism and Islam, who did those gods love before they created? I don't think they, they did. They could love anything because they were the only personality that was present. There wasn't something else to love. There wasn't the recipient of the love. So you can say God is all-powerful in Islam, and you can say that creation started uh, through this act of sheer power, but you cannot say that it was an act of pure love because there weren't personalities. There wasn't a relationship to, uh, to, to manifest that, that love. Am I making sense? I'm not getting a lot of uh, facial expressions here. So when, when, Eastern, Christi uh, when, when Eastern thought says that uh, God is in everyone and everyone is in God, it's that panentheism. They can't say that God is love either because there's only one. And it's sort of this uh, all-encompassing you know, soul. But there's no one identity. They say that you're a little drop and eventually you become part of the ocean. But the ocean cannot love anything else because that is where everything ends up. Are you with me? There's not an other to love. In Christianity, we say the most fundamental reality of this world is love. And that is because God is relational. There's a line that I think helps me. And we can say that God alone is God, but God is not alone. God alone is God, but God is not alone, which I'm stealing from Ellis Potter, by the way. Now, I want to quickly jump to another passage where we get another glimpse into the life of the Trinity. And this is in, in the Gospel according to Mark. So at the beginning of the Gospel according to Mark, we see, we see the following interaction. So this is Mark 1 from verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now that, that little interaction might not strike us as, as amazing, but a first century observer would have picked up on a couple of things. And I think we can as well. The first one is this, that 
you can see all the players, all the personalities of the Trinity is involved in, this, in, in these few verses. You have God the Father who speaks. You have the Son who is the recipient of this glorification, who's being baptized. And you have the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, there would have been a translation that would have been very popular in the days of Jesus, of the Old Testament, which would have been called the Targums, the Targums. And that is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures, of the Old Testament. And the way in which they translated Genesis 1, this is now, um, we, we, we're back, we're in the creation account. This is how they translated it. And the earth was without form or void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered like a dove above the face of the waters, and God spoke, let there be light. So, Mark framing Jesus' baptism in this way would have immediately reminded his audience of creation. These are the same players that were present in, in creation because you only have the Holy Spirit being likened to a dove in one other place, and that is in Genesis 1, in the creation account. What does that mean? What's the implications of, uh, implication of that? It means that this universe was loved into existence. If you look at all the creation myths, let's go to the Babylonian creation myth. You've got Marduk, and then you've got another god creature type thing called Tiamat. And Marduk cuts Tiamat in half, and with the half of his guts, he creates the world, and with the other half of his guts, he creates the stars and the, the galaxies, etc., etc. It's a wonderful little story. Um, and, the, 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 and all of the creation myths look the same. And the message is quite clear that there was a fight, there was a war, one conquered the other, and that's how, how, how the world came to be. There's another creation myth. It's called evolutionary naturalism. Now, we're not going to go into the evolution debate today, but let's assume that we're talking about evolutionary naturalism. In other words, it's a completely unguided, random process. Then again, it is a very violent origin story where, um, where, where it's just death upon death upon death, and it's this very violent process that created the world that we find ourselves in, and it's still a very hostile place. But if the Christian account is true, then it says the following. Well, even if it's not true, this is what the Christian account says. The world was danced into existence as an act of sheer love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is attractive if you compare it to all the other options um, available. So, so, so this is one thing that we are, we are seeing in this, um, in this passage. So God creates us because, not because he needs us, and this is important. He doesn't create us because he wants Ivan to be his cheerleader um, and, and Ivan is going to get a good kick out of it when he, when he plays guitar and, and, and that's just nice. And, and then God is going to say, oh, I really love the sound of Ivan's guitar. Now I, I'm not that angry anymore. Um, that's, that's not why he created. He created as, as an act of sheer love. He didn't need our praise. He didn't need us because he was already happy and relationally fulfilled within himself. This is very important. Remember our original objection. Is God an egomaniac? 
I think the first part of the answer is he didn't create us so that his ego can feel okay. He created us as an act of, of love and he wanted to share the love that he has within himself with us. And he wants us to enjoy creation. He wants, wants us to enjoy him. He wants us to enjoy others. And you can see this when, um, when, when Adam... Is when, when the animals are brought to Adam, Adam is just so excited. Okay, I'm going to name you lion. Okay, you are dog. He's just naming. He's just in love with creation. He's just looking at everything around him and just giving everything names. And then eventually God brings his wife, Eve, to him. And now he can't just name her. He must sing a song. So he sings this love song, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He wasn't a great singer or lyric writer. But uh, the fact of the matter is he, he sings and he's so mesmerized with everything around him. And then sin creeps in. Sin creeps in. And what's the first thing that happens as soon as humanity sin? Self-conscious and shame immediately creeps in. For the first time, Adam and Eve, we don't know how long they were running around naked, not noticing it. But for the first time, <coughs> excuse me, they notice that they are naked and they feel shame. That camera that was so focused on everyone else, that was so immersed in the exterior world, has now turned in on the self. And for the first time, Adam says, oh man, I wonder what I look like. I wonder if I'm coming across as, as good as I should. What about me? Um, all of a sudden, he's not singing songs to his wife. He's being insecure about himself. He's not singing songs to God. He's being insecure about himself. And that dance that danced the world into existence and that dance that Adam and Eve were invited into is lost. The dance is lost because now humanity has become static. Remember the, the, the metaphor that we are using. The one is dynamic, it is moving, moving, it is orbiting around the other. The other one is static. Now we are standing still. And now we want others to revolve around us. And the rest of human history is pretty much there for us to see what it looks like when, when humanity becomes static. So, so these are little lines that one can consider as conventional wisdom. But when people say, you know, we want the recognition we deserve. Or I deserve to do something for myself. Or I don't need that in my life right now. Or I deserve this. Or I, w I want to do what makes me happy. Or no one can tell me what to do. This all sounds like conventional wisdom. That is just various lines describing us in our static position. And it's quite tragic. We lost the dance. We've lost the rhythm. Some of you, like Patu, is racist and say that a lot of the white people have still not gotten the dance since. Um, so you have fallen more, but, but that, is a, that is a heresy. Shame on you. Um, God doesn't leave us. He doesn't leave us in our rhythmless, static place where we find ourselves. He starts off by saying, I want you to worship me. He reveals himself and he says, I want you to worship. And eventually, Jesus is given the opportunity to summarize what everything in the Old Testament is about. 
everything that sometimes sounds very strange to us, that sometimes sounds like the, uh, the tent peg from the, the house of Gilgamesh and they brought the butter dish to the house of, that sounds just bizarre and we cannot make sense of it. This is how Jesus summarizes this in, in Matthew 22 from the, the, verse uh, 30, 35. So a lawyer comes up to him and asks him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the laws, the prophets. In a word, Jesus' summary, not in a word, but in a sentence, Jesus' summary amounts to get out of yourself. Focus on God Focus on others. Get out of yourself. Turn the camera around. Start moving. Do not be static. Now, it's strange because it seems like we, when we think that you need to worship God, you need to do it for God's sake. But God is saying, I made you. I know what makes you flourish. And what makes you flourish is if you are moving and serving me and worshiping me and serving other people. That is what is going to make me happy. I am infinitely happy within myself, says God. But this is what you need. So do you understand that when God says we should worship him, it is for our sake, not primarily for his sake. There's another line that I just quickly want to, want to double-click on. And that is, when, when we pray, if you pray like me, then you pray typically like a pagan. You would immediately go to, oh, Lord, I'm in trouble here. I need your help with this. Or, oh, Lord, I haven't spoken to you in a while. Um, my boy is sick, and it's really costing me sleep. Um, can you please intervene? Um, it's, it's, I immediately go to the requests. And you know what? Bizarrely enough, I never get peace after I've prayed to God. And, and there's a reason for it. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, it's designed in a very particular way where it says, Our Father who art in heaven, and it says, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You start off with God. And then you go over towards things of, help me to forgive people that I, that I need to forgive and um, may they forgive me. And may we have grace. Thank you for your forgiveness as well. And then only yeah, at the end you say, thank you. For, and, and we ask for our daily bread as well. We ask that you sustain us. But that's not the first thing you go to when you pray. You start with adoration, friends. Let's go try this. In your prayer life, if you start and you focus on God and you look at who he is and you say, God, you are, you are the God who danced this world into existence you are a god of love and because that is your primary identity is this relational god you for some reason relate to me in a personal and relational way and just melts my heart and you are inviting me in you see when you when you see god that way and you start with that adoration by the time you get to your little requests everything is sort of placed into perspective if you've got that perspective of God, of who he is, then 
I don't have to ask God for, oh God, I've got a very difficult job interview. Because you already know God loves me and he's in control. And because of who he is, this thing just, whatever happens, happens. And I'm going to be okay. Can you see how your adoration of God, how your worship of God can put all of these other things into their rightful and correct places? Are you guys with me? And that is why God says that's where you have to start. When you worship, you have to focus on, on me, not because um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a massive kick out of it, but because only then will all of these other things fall into the place uh, that, they, that they should. And only then will the peace that transcends all understanding guard, guard your heart. All right. But I want to get back to the dance. So in, in John 17, we already read the one passage, but I want to revisit that same, that same chapter. And, and there we see, just a few verses later, we see Jesus expanding a little bit on this, this inner dynamic of what, he, of what he came to do. This is John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is, he's talking about us there. He's saying, I'm, I'm not only praying for my disciples who are here, but I'm also praying for the disciples who will believe because of what they have to say about me. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Friends, <coughs> God is a dancing God. And what he is describing there in John 17 is the oneness that he has been experiencing and the love and adoration and the dance, the perichoresis that he has been experiencing um, since eternity is something that he wants to share with us. That is eternal life we hear earlier. To take part in the dance, to be part of this dynamic, dynamic force that is, that is God's dancing. That is the invitation. That is his desire. So when he calls us to worship him, he is, he is asking us to join him in doing what he's been doing eternally. Do you see how that works? And when Jesus is on the cross with his arms stretched open, that is his invitation to come and join the dance. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom to many. That doesn't sound like an egomaniac, narcissist God. This is the God who can see that we have lost our rhythm, that we are static, that we are selfish, and he wants to invite us back into this dynamic dance. And friends, once one understands that, it is probably one of the most liberating experiences um, and illustrate this, this wonderful truth. And I'm going to use my old friend um, C.S. Lewis. So he writes about the dance and he says the following. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three personal life is being played out in each one of us. 
or putting it in the other way, or putting it the other way around, each of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance. There is no other way to happiness for which we are made. Good things, as well as bad, are caught by a kind of infection. You want to be warm, you must stand near a fire. If you want to be wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are the great fountain of energy spurting up out of the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Do you understand what he's saying? We need to get in proximity to this dance and we need to take part of it. He continues, he says, at the beginning, he's talking about his book, Mere Christianity. At the beginning I said there were personalities in God. I will go further now. There are no personalities anywhere else. Until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. Give up yourself and you will find your true self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Lord Jesus, we, we stand in awe of, of who you are as the God who, who is love. And Lord, when we struggle to make sense of, of what it means to follow you, and we, we even take offense by, uh, by the fact that you command us to worship you, I pray that, that even though we, we, some of us might have that, that question, that it would lead to this more complete picture of who you are, and that is the dancing God. That is the God who is love who loved the world into existence and who didn't leave us when we lost the dance, who selflessly gave himself, invited us back into the dance, Lord. And I pray that, that we as individuals, but also as a, as a community of believers, will be able to step into that rhythm, that we will be able to love you and to love others that we will be able to worship you and all our problems will be put into perspective, that we will be able, as best we can, take part in this divine dance, uh, the wonderful outstretched invitation that we find in Jesus on the cross. I pray, Lord, that we will not, that we will not deny this wonderful offer that is, that is given us. And that is why, Lord, we can worship you. We can worship you because we were made to worship you. We can worship you because you are worth it. And we can, we can worship you, Lord, because, because you are the God of the cross. And we pray this in the precious name.
of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good evening, everyone.